Welcome to the Angel Next Door podcast, your gateway to the dynamic world of angel investing. I'm your host, Marsha Dawood, and together we will demystify what it means to invest in early stage companies, who's behind it, and how anyone can be a part of it. If you've ever wondered how you can affect the change you want to see in the world, then tune in to learn more. everyone. In this episode, I'm talking to Kirsten Moorfield, co-founder and COO of Cloverleaf, a platform that helps teams improve collaboration and productivity. Kirsten shares her insights and experiences as an early stage tech company founder, offering valuable advice on topics such as valuation, investor relationships, board management, and leveraging assessments for team building. Kirsten talks about the complexities of revenue as a sole indicator of viability and valuation emphasizing the need for investors to look beyond this metric. She sheds light on the importance of finding traction through customer feedback and actual market actions, rather than simply relying on signups or waiting lists. Throughout the conversation, Kirsten highlights the significant role that strategic advisors play in a company's success. She discusses the importance of aligning advisors' expertise with the company's needs and cautions against giving board roles solely based on investment. Instead, she emphasizes the value of investors who can provide practical support and guidance tailored to the company's stage of growth. Join us as Kirsten shares her invaluable wisdom and lessons learned on the journey of building a successful early-stage tech company and how she maximizes the strengths of her advisors and investors to grow her business. Enjoy the show. Well, hi, Kirsten. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Marsha. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear more about Cloverleaf. So here on the Angel Next Door podcast, we're talking about how anyone can invest in change and what you're doing with Cloverleaf and helping to build cultures within startup communities and within startup businesses. I am really excited to hear about. So why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and about Cloverleaf itself and what you do. Absolutely. I'm happy to. So I started my career actually in marketing and I I quickly realized I'm not a creative and I moved kind of more to the business side and helping to manage large clients and their projects. And I worked in an agency where I got to see all kinds of different mixes of people on projects. And so we had, you know, about a group of a hundred people that were constantly reorganized onto different projects and would see, hey, you know, this animator with this designer would create the best, most amazing project. And the client would come back for more and they'd be so excited. And then you take that that same designer, put them with a different animator, and it was horrible. And it had nothing to do with skill set. Everyone had the right technical skills to do excellent work. They had a great track record on different projects. It really came down to how people work together. That is what creates value today, and especially in our knowledge-based economy. So I, I led a team and I had my team take uh, Myers-Briggs and StrengthsFinder because I thought, you know, hey, let's figure this out. Let's figure out a better way for me to coach my people and the high performers, the low performers, and the, the ones who change performance based on who they're with. And I couldn't figure it out. I love these assessments. They really changed my life. They helped me understand myself better and how I can show up at work in a way that is more valuable to the company, valuable to my customers, but also it's actually fun for me and enjoyable and life-giving instead of draining. But I just couldn't figure out as a leader how to use it because I was looking at a spreadsheet with words like 
restorative and achiever and right. you know, like, I don't know what, I didn't know what all of that meant without going and getting trained and becoming an expert. And I didn't have the money for that. So long story short, I'm skipping so many details. Somebody that I worked with at that company asked me to start a business with him because I wanted to start a business. And we were chatting about that. And he said, well, Hey, how about you start this one with me? We're going to take assessments and use them to help people find, actually, he literally said, find their groove at work and use technology with that. So that is, that is kind of the birth story of what ultimately led to Cloverleaf today. Wow. That's neat. Yeah. I've taken all those, you know, the Myers-Briggs, the strength finders, and I'm with you. Like I know a lot about the things that apply to me, but I don't know that many things. Like there's all these words, you know, like maximizer and yeah, like things like, I was like, I don't know. I don't know. What exactly does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. And how would that equate to me trying to work with somebody else who has those strengths that I don't? Yeah. It's a, it's a little confusing once you get out of your own little comfort zone. Yes, it is. So we just saw that those things are super valuable. They like literally changed the way I view myself and my life, especially StrengthsFinder when I was 23. And we recognized that that industry hadn't changed pretty much ever. It was, I mean, sure, they went from do paper copies to do it on online, take the assessments online, but everything else about it hadn't changed. It's just take an assessment, get a report. And so we thought, not entirely sure exactly what we would do with it, but we knew that it could help people find where they wanted to work. Like when you go to work for a company, you never interview with your whole entire team and really get to know, is this going to be a great team for me to work on? So we thought, hey, let's use technology to get assessments into the hiring process in a way that's not about, are you a fit for this company, but it's really about the specific team you're going to work on. And you as the recruitee can see if that's the type of team you want to work on, help, you know, reduce turnover in the first six months, blah, 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 all that business case. We went to market with that. We created a really, really limited MVP and put it in front of people. And they said, I don't want another recruiting tool but I love your team building tool you're building. And so we just said, oh, that's right. We're not a recruiting tool. We're a team building software, which there's no market for. And so that was an interesting marketing play. And through a lot of twists and turns, we started to realize, you know, people need a way to take what's in these reports and make it really digestible. And so actually in a total moment of desperation, going into a sales call I really didn't want to do. I had heard the same feedback over and over from people that they they said, hey, this is really interesting. I really, really like this. But once I see it a few times, what do I do with it? How is it sticky? Because at that point, it was just... It was like charts that aggregated everyone's assessment results on a digital dashboard. And it was super dynamic as people came and left. It changed, but it was all just visual, right? And so I I actually was like, you know, dreading going into a sales call, knowing I was going to get the exact same feedback as I'd always gotten. And I literally just fell on my knees and I prayed and I was like, I don't want to do this call. What can we do to improve this, like not get the same feedback that's not working for people. And I had this idea 
to take what was in these reports behind these assessments and like take two sentences out and email it to people. So we started doing that and it's just two sentences like, Hey, you're good at this. Try this today. Or, Hey, you might feel conflict in this type of a scenario or, Hey, this is how this person's most likely to get persuaded. Do this, not that, you know, that type of information. And that totally took off. We just started emailing it. It became a huge hit. And that long story short has turned into what we have coined as automated coaching. Automated coaching. That's cool. So how exactly does it work? We mostly sell to large enterprises where people are consistently changing teams all the time, or you have that call with that person in Germany that you've worked with maybe once or twice over the past three years, but you don't know them really well. Or intact teams who have worked together for a long time, but might be having friction or might just not be as productive as they could be. And those those folks come onto the platform and take an assessment or two or three or 10 if you want to. A lot of people have already invested into them and just know their results and can input their results. And then we turn that into, like I said, automated coaching. So we'll read your calendar before a meeting and send you a tip on how to best work with that person. Or we, you know, you have teams on the platform. So those dashboards I mentioned, they're all still there, just chock full of so much more information today. That's very dynamic where you can see based on this team, what's our... What's our strengths as a team? What are our blind spots as a team? What should we focus on as a team? And if you're having, you know, any particular moment with a person that you want to go deeper on, whether it's yourself or somebody you work with, you can just search in the platform. How can I delegate better? Why is Raj not responding to my feedback? Why am I having conflict with Sue? You know, you can just search for whatever it is you need and then coaching pops up to help you navigate those situations. Wow, that seems like awesome and will really help with building culture within an organization. That's the goal. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is just talk to people about their work experience. I mean, I'll do this at a, you know, a barbecue, but I'll also do it in a more organized fashion for work, like talking to our customers. And I, I hear from people all the time so quickly, people will go to complaining about somebody that they work with and, you know, they feel conflict, they feel frustrated, they feel steamrolled, they feel confused, they feel overseen, they feel a lot of feelings. And when I ask them some probing questions about it, it often comes down to some pretty basic psychology of different ways that people see the world. It could be that, you know, you're a big picture thinker. And so this person who's asking you a bunch of questions, it makes you feel undermined or untrusted by that person, but really they're just a detail oriented person. And they're just trying to understand your idea. It doesn't mean they don't like it. It doesn't mean they think that you're incapable of thinking through details. It doesn't mean that they're doubtful of your abilities. It just means they're trying to understand it. And what I, I just have come to see that so much of our exhaustion and so much of our frustration and so much of our limited capacity at work oftentimes just comes down to simple misunderstandings about people's different ways of showing up and our different strengths. And when you can understand that, not only can you enjoy each other more, build better relationships, not feel exhausted by the conflict, but feel empowered to navigate the scenario, you actually do better work you know, back to the example of being a detail-oriented person or a big picture visionary, they both need each other to do their best. I, as a big picture visionary, I need the critical thinking, detail-oriented folks around me to poke holes to actually make the idea 
work, <laughs> not just big and huge, you know? So yeah, that's, that's the goal that we're going for is help people navigate relationships in a way that builds meaningful, enjoyable, and life enriching relationships, and also unleashes all of us to do our best work. Yeah, that that seems like a, a great place to be in a work environment. And how do you measure the results? Mm, such a good question, Marsha. We do surveys before and throughout their experience on the platform. And the reason why I say that's such a good question is because who we sell to is talent management, learning and development, people strategy leaders inside these large organizations. And one of my favorite things to ask them is, how do you measure your success? And most of them say, we can't. <laughs> we can't measure the success of our program we put on, of our training we put on. We'll try to find ways to just tie it back to something broad like retention in the company. And the best way that people do this today is through surveys. And so that's what we're doing. But I'm really excited about work we have going on right now where we're going to move beyond surveys and actually get more interactivity in our coaching moments to where we're going to be able to not just ask a couple of specific questions, but really measure behavior change and relationship evolution. So much more exciting news to come on that over the next year. That seems amazing. I'm really happy that you pivoted the way that you did and are now working on culture, especially for earlier stage companies too. They need just as much help there as as some of the bigger companies. Completely. Yeah. I mean, I talk about we target selling to the enterprise because those teams are so dynamic and change often, but we've had companies on our platform who have, you know, 12 people for the past many years and they're still getting a lot of value out of it. And of course, our team Today, we're about 40 employees and we use it all the time. <laughs> and we're intact teams. We're not changing the size of our company or the, the composition of our teams. And it's still super valuable. That's great. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because our mutual friend, Sue Baggett, has told me some yes. amazing stories about how well you have worked with outside advisors and board members in order to help grow the business. And I know our listeners, there's a lot of angel investors who are listening and they could definitely, I think they'd like to hear a little bit about how advisors and board members kind of fit into a company, but also there's entrepreneurs that are listening too. And, and maybe you could give them some advice too about how you chose advisors at the beginning, how you formed a board when it came to that time, and then how that's evolved. Yeah. Yeah. Really good questions. Okay. So in the early days, we really didn't know what we didn't know. And we didn't have a broad network in startup, in tech, or in investors even. I mean, we really... Darren and I started from scratch in our understanding of this world. And so one of the lessons that we learned pretty quickly was that a lot of people really wanted us to be successful. And we're really excited about our vision and our ideas and very well-meaning would give us advice in an effort to help that actually we found out was not very applicable because of whatever background they had. You know, like somebody who has been... I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio. There's a lot of folks from P&G or Fifth Third, these really large organizations. And the advice that they had to give us just wasn't really applicable because they hadn't had the specific experience we were going through. So... One of the ways that we learned early on was there's 
how do you read between the lines between someone who really, really wants to help, but doesn't actually have the right expertise? And then how can you just leverage them in a different way? So we, we had a lot of like, how could we get more specific on our ask so that in their good intentions, they're not wasting their own time. So we, we had those folks to help make introductions for us or especially into their organizations where we could get feedback on the product or that kind of a thing. But, you know, getting feedback on, for example, our sales process from a large organization that early on wasn't very helpful because we didn't have a team the way that they do, but getting feedback on the product was helpful. That, that was a trial by error, you know, learn through mistakes. And then informing the board, we just got really, really lucky, I guess. Sue, we got connected to early on through an accelerator we went through and she came to one of our pitch practices and she just had really good feedback on the pitch. So her and I met a few more times and she not only had feedback on just, you know, how to pitch investors and all of that, she has expertise in customer research, consumer research, and marketing. And so she taught me tips and tricks on interviewing, which was so helpful in those early days of building a product. And then when she she was able to make us an introduction to Queen City Angels, who ended up being our first investors or our, our lead investors for our first round. And then we we had her join the board because she had been able to be so practically helpful to us already. And I think that's a really helpful thing in forming your board if you have that luxury of time is to go with folks who have not just capital, but actual ways that they know that they can help you. Because I also know some early stage founders who have gotten, again, really well-meaning early board members who actually can create some distraction in the business because their experience is so different. And so what they think is good advice or what they think the company really needs to do is actually a little too larger scale than is helpful in like a four-person early stage startup. Totally. And oh my gosh, you just said so many amazing things there. So wait, let's go back and unpack a little bit. When you were talking about advisors who really weren't a fit and you didn't want to waste their time and you didn't want to waste your time, that is so spot on because I've seen that happen before where people are like, oh, I have all of this expertise. And and yes, they do. And they're amazing people and they have incredible backgrounds and they're very well connected, but maybe they aren't the right fit for your company. And that's okay. You know, we don't have to try to fit every square peg into a round hole. So I like how you were saying, look, we used them for what we knew we could use them for, but you said you had to leverage them in a different way, which makes a ton of sense. I see too often where people are trying to put someone as in an either an advisory role or even a board role more even a board role when they've written a check. And just because they wrote a check, they can get on the board. And that is just such the wrong thing to do, especially for an early stage company, if they aren't the right person that the company really needs. Yes, 100%. So what accelerator were you in? We did Ocean Accelerator. Oh, nice. Okay. And so it's funny what you said with Sue and the pitch. She is so good at pitch decks. I, I do find a lot of times that that is something that startups really struggle with is how do they get their pitch deck to in a way that people will they'll get excited and they'll be interested right from the beginning and i find that the first two slides are usually the ones that will make or break that you know it's kind of like are they actually going to be listening to you while you're going through the other slides in your deck or are they thinking about what they're having for dinner right <laughs> so yeah. 
you know, the first slide has to be like, what is the actual problem that you're solving? And are you really solving a problem or are you a solution in search of a problem? People hear me say that all the time. And then of course, what is the, the solution? And, and is it, is it something that people will want to pay money for? Yes. And, you know, I'll say in our earliest days, I spent so much time on our pitch. And I mean, I'm talking like, who knows how many hours, like definitely over a hundred over that first year. And I don't regret it. I think it was worth it. It felt like a waste of time because I wasn't like selling or responding to a customer or anything like that. But I think it was really worth it because that's what becomes marketing too. How do you clearly articulate your problem and your solution? That's what needs to go in all of your marketing anyway, you know? And I would also say like, just as an encouragement to really early founders, I think we did a terrible job. (laughs) I think, you know, the way that we were articulating our problem and solution, in some ways, we're still doing it the same way today, but we've evolved it so much better. We articulate it so much better. And we had, of course, like, a hundred no's before we got our first yes, right? Like that's how that goes. I think that it's super painful. So keep trying, but at the same time, like you don't expect yourself to get it perfect. Don't be so hard on yourself when you get all those no's because that's also just part of the journey. It's part of the learning. That is absolutely right. And I love what you said about the marketing piece because that's so true. You know, all of the things that you're doing, they all flow together. It's not like, oh, I'm working on a pitch deck and that's just about the pitching. No, it's it's about marketing. It's about how you're you're gonna end up using that in like social media posts or you know, other things that you're trying to do in order to promote your business. So there's just there's so much there. And you can, you can test with that now. Like you can put yourself a little video on LinkedIn of you just talking through your problem and just see like, does it resonate with people? Does it get engagements? Does it get likes, reposts, like comments, that kind of a thing. There's so many ways that you can practice this before you actually get in front of the investor that I wish I had tried more. That is such a smart tip. We're definitely going to call that out (laughs) with the episode. Okay. So then how did things evolve as your board needs evolved and as you were raising more money? Because you've raised two pretty significant rounds now, right? Yeah, we've raised a a couple of rounds. And actually our first, we raised a seed and then we raised a bridge. Really, we should have been like pre-seed and seed, which all these names, right? All these. I know. I know. Seriously. That's why I always tell people, I'm like, you know what? Don't worry about the... the Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about that. Don't. Don't worry about it. Just don't raise a series B too early. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> just right, keep it right. early sounding. We kept our same board for the first two rounds, which was one investor, which was Sue, and one independent. And I think that was also really helpful to keep the board small in those early days because there was so much iteration that it wouldn't have been... I mean, like we didn't have... The board meetings we have today are totally different than those early stage board meetings. Today, we'll do a lot of look at the same metrics over and over type of a thing, talk about bigger strategic problems. Whereas in those days, like you don't even have your metrics established. You're just testing so much. So I think it was really great that Sue wanted us to keep the board small, but also we had an independent who was an industry expert. She worked in AI for HR at Accenture. And so she reviewed HR startups all the time. And I mean, dozens a month, right? And so she just had such good industry knowledge to share with us. And then as we evolved, we closed a, a, a later round, we like our, our 
lead investor on that round, he was, he just had so much experience himself as an operator, as a successful entrepreneur, Kevin O'Connor. And so he joined the board and we expanded it then to five. And we realized, you know, we've got Kevin who has such good sales experience and like CEO experience of like overseeing revenue operations. And Sue, who's like, excellent consumer, like understand your customer research market, very strategic on the go-to-market side. We didn't have anybody on the product side. So we actually did a search through Bolster, which I highly recommend, bolster.com. They help find high-level talent for startups, whether it's interim, whether it's full-time, whether it's board members, whether it's advisors. I cannot recommend them enough because we use them to search for our independent board member. And we found this guy, Srinivas, who was head of product growth at Calendly. And he loved our mission. He loved what we were doing. And he joined the board, which just felt like such a win for us. We were still pretty early stage and small, but he just, he caught, he caught the the vision and he was invaluable and he's still on the board today. And has been able to bring that product expertise into the board meetings because you can't just talk all the time about what are your sales metrics without also understanding like, well, what's the product? What's wrong in the product? What's missing in the product? What's strategically going well in the product? So I think the way I could summarize that is it was really about examining where were our biggest weaknesses as a company where we knew we needed expertise and what was the composition of the board at that time and where did those match up well or not well? And then therefore, who did we need? additional expertise from. That's awesome. I, you know, bolster.com, I hadn't heard of them before. So we'll definitely oh, put information in the show notes about that. That seems amazing. They're so good. So helpful. We, I'm such a fan of Bolster. We, we've also used Bolster to find just advisors for our people. So a lot of our business at first was built on interns and then early career folks who just had the passion and the drive, but didn't have the expertise, but also didn't need the salary of experts. And so we would connect them with advisors. We would find experts in the field and Bolster has been a really helpful part of that as well. Just finding, you know, somebody who's really seasoned, who's not looking for a full-time job, but really wants to give back to the startup community. And then they'll usually on like a hourly basis, just mentor one of our people who needs, needs some help growing in how to strategically think through the problem or like what to build up in their department. That's great. Yeah. We'll definitely put all that information in the show notes, including all the information about cloverleaf.me. So Kirsten, what are some of the things that you wish angels knew as investors? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. I wish when we were raising, I wish angels understood two particular things about investing in tech, tech specifically. It's different with different types of companies, but specifically investing in an early stage tech company when the first question or one of the first questions we would get asked was, what's your revenue? I started to see that as a red flag of just, I'm not sure this investor is going to be a good fit. Not because revenue doesn't matter. Revenue is king. Revenue matters so much. It shows traction. It's really critical. But in those earliest days, when you're running on an MVP, 
you've got to find a way to find traction that is not only revenue. I think if a company is generating no revenue, like that's a bit concerning, but don't try to form valuation off of revenue and don't see revenue as like the one and only indicator, but look for other indicators of what is really gaining traction inside of this company. And that I think that'll look different for different companies. So I don't have the answer of what it should be, but we just had to do so much educating of angels on that topic that took a lot of our time. And I think ultimately just created some pain for everybody. So I'm not saying revenue doesn't matter. I'm just saying it can't be the the one and only way that you're going to determine valuation or even if this company is viable. Because really in in that earliest stage, you're investing in the founders, not the current business, because it's really about what what they're dreaming of and what you believe them to be capable of and what they've proven in ways, including, but not only revenue. And then the other thing I would say is when it comes to valuation, valuation in in such an early stage is like a hundred percent art. There's no science to it. You know, we did a lot of back and forth with a bunch of investors and, and uh, just kept hearing some pretty conservative estimates that were so different than what you would hear if you listen to like a podcast from somebody on the West coast, but you know, we're not on the West coast. We were in the Midwest and that's where we had connections. And so we went with a pretty conservative valuation that I don't think was unfair. I don't think that at all. However, we did get feedback later on from some investors who passed on us and just said, the founders don't own enough of their company anymore. And so we don't want to risk our capital on a company where the founders aren't as incentivized to continue working for the long haul. So I think that's another thing is valuation. You just have to be thinking of the the long-term effect of that because there will be additional rounds when you're at that early and you need to protect your interest as an angel, which also involves (laughs) protecting that the founders can continue to raise and grow their business. Oh, that makes so much sense. Now, going back to what you were saying about revenue, because I totally agree. So just as an example, what did you want people to look at more than revenue in those very early days for Cloverleaf? I think traction based on the quality of the product that we had, like what was, you know, like Queen City did a great job. They interviewed customers and just asked them like, what is it that you like about this? What is it that you think about it? And that says so much more than our actual dollars because like a company can't invest tens of thousands of dollars into a product that like barely works, right? Like it's hanging on by a shoestring. I think also it probably depends on the company, but there's got to be other ways where you can see like, okay, if this company is building a SaaS product, what are the early adopters? Even if they're not paying, which in most cases they won't be like, are they using it? How often are they using it? What are they saying about it? Are they getting like sign? I I think like signups to be on a waiting list is not exactly a good indicator because that's a waiting list that doesn't show that they actually like the real thing. It shows that they just like the idea. So it has to be something where there's proven maybe skin in the game or just like action speaks louder than words, right? So something that shows action from the market. That makes a lot of sense. I've seen companies where they had like $22,000 in revenue, which seems like nothing, but they were still in pilot programs. They were still trying to prove out that to like an enterprise company that their employees would actually use it. So that's going to take some time. And obviously in that example, revenue is not going to showcase exactly what the company's doing. Yeah, we had 23,000 ARR at the end of the year uh, in 2016. 
17. And, you know, investors were just like, that's not enough. Like, we want to see you get to like 10,000 MRR, 5,000 MRR. And we were like, how on this product that we have right now? And we we also like learned, don't do free pilots because free pilots, the, the company doesn't have any skin in the game. So they're not actually going to adopt it because they're busy and they've got other things to do that they do have skin in the game on. And so... We did do paid pilots, but the product itself was so limited. So the revenue was small. And my co-founder, Darren, he had this ingenious idea one day. He was like, we've only had $50,000 put into this company. So I'm just, I'm just going to reframe that. With only $50,000 invested into this company, we've generated $23,000 in <laughs> That's <AR>. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And that, that worked very well for us. That's great. Well, Kirsten, thank you so much for being on the show today. We look forward to seeing more about what Cloverleaf is going to do. And we'll make sure to put all of your contact information and how people can start using Cloverleaf in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you, Marsha. Hey, thanks for listening. To connect with me, visit my website at marshadawood.com. And if you're looking to learn more about investing in the changes that you want to see in the world, sign up for Anne and Bill Payne's ACA Angel University classes. You go to angelcapitalassociation.org, all one word, to find out the schedule. And beginning in the fall of 2023, classes will be available on demand. Many classes are offered, everything from the angel investing basics. So there's classes on the fundamentals, risks, due diligence, term sheets, valuations, returns and portfolio strategy. And for a deeper dive, there are advanced classes, which include capitalization tables, startup boards, and exit strategies. If you're not already a member of the Angel Capital Association, you can become one for the low price of $295 for the year. And that will give you unparalleled access to discounts, free webinars with a huge archive of content, networking opportunities, and much more. We'd love to have you join us. All content for this website is informational and not intended to serve as legal, tax, accounting, or investing advice. Well, Marsha, that's me, does serve on the SEC Small Business Capital Formation Advisory Committee. My views are my own and not the views of the SEC or my fellow colleagues on the committee. Our speakers and hosts are thoughtfully selected for their educational value, but their opinions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the host, me, or the Angel Capital Association and neither specifically endorse the use of presenters' products or services, listeners of the podcast should consult their own tax, investing, legal, or accounting advisors before making important financial decisions. All warranties, including accuracy, completeness, and suitability for specific purpose, are disclaimed.